From the Three Degrees Discussion Studio, I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Yeah, so we use height as our inspection feature. And the height spectrum is really interesting. It can detect defects in any layer of powder that's spread before any melting or solidification even happens. We're able to see streaks, hops, spatter, short feeds, build plate skew, anything that is deposited during the build um, and get a quantification and a, and a height cloud of all of those points. That was Niall O'Dowd. Niall's the founder of Phase 3D, a company providing solutions for part monitoring and process control for added manufacturing. Now completed his PhD in structural engineering from the University of California, San Diego, and joins us today to talk about his entrepreneurship journey. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. You can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your team are looking for materials, qualification, or general ad manufacturing support, reach out to our team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right, Niall, thanks so much for joining the show today. Super excited to to have a a local a local guest on the podcast today. Um, so we start like we do with, with everybody else, kind of from the, the very beginning. So uh, where were you born, where are you from, and... Uh, what were some of those early memories on kind of getting a uh, getting into engineering, getting into science? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. I love the show and happy to be featured on it. Um, yeah, so I'm from Seattle. Um, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, did uh, some school out in New York State and really got into um, advanced manufacturing through my PhD. Um, at University of California, San Diego. It's a great place to learn about additive manufacturing, uh, the challenges of the industry. And throughout my undergrad and graduate school, I worked closely with the Los Alamos National Lab, um, specifically structural engineering. Um, we were doing structural health monitoring, which is the science about inspecting structures, which could be aerospace structures, civil structures, the manufacturing process, pretty much everything that is built, you know, deteriorates over time and needs maintenance, repair, replacement. And with advanced signal processing and these advanced electronic systems, we're able to really target and interrogate these structures in a way that can help us figure out when these things need repair, or what state they're in. And so I learned about added manufacturing, the potential for the metal added manufacturing industry, um, production, parts and you know we learned a lot about um, during my PhD the issues and the challenges towards getting to that end use production the first time right printing and qualification and certification of these amazing parts that can be printed but not necessarily approved by all of the certifications qualifications of the chain. You have an early yeah. memory of like what was an interesting thing that got your mind like your curiosity going about i mean i don't want to say like inspection or something like that but like were you a tinker did you like taking stuff apart did you have like a class that you liked like yeah so actually in high school 
I was um, obsessed with the uh, sculpture department. And so I kept going back to sculpture and I started an independent study um, in this strange little department in this room in my high school called the Department of Making Things. And it was basically, we'd go up into the library building and then go up to the second floor and then go through this one door, then go down some stairs and then go up a couple of stairs. And there's this man in this room surrounded by laser cutter, a cupcake maker bot, a laser engraver, this room that nobody really knew about. And I would use the laser cutter to make different kinds of like a disco ball and stencils, multi-layer things. And I, I remember um, using SketchUp to make this FDM like octopus type thing where these parts were shoving into each other and the tolerancing was all messed up and learning about, you know, how much overlap does there need to be? Should How much space should I leave between all of these different parts? So really from then on, just interested in ways I can go from a computer design to a physical part without actually having to use an exacto knife for an hour and a half to cut something or or build something or shave off something. It's really you know exciting time to be able to make something on the computer and then see it in your hand in a, the next day. So what, maybe going back to kind of the undergrad days, um, yeah. did you always think that you were going to do a PhD? Was that a, a roadmap that you had no, kind of built out for I yourself? Actually, I didn't really realize that that was a thing um, until I did my first um, internship slash co-op at Los Alamos National Lab. So when I was an undergrad, when I first started school, I really wanted to do something creative, but also something involving physics and engineering. And I thought being a mechanical engineer would be a way to exercise analytics, mathematics, physics, but also something creative, design, making things. But throughout my undergrad, I felt like the engineering was not as creative as I would have liked. And so in my final year, I was kind of gearing up to do a product design or some kind of industrial design master's degree. Um, but then I did my final co-op at Los Alamos National Lab. And the National Lab system was so exciting because everyone's doing all of these things for the first time. And creative problem solving, publications, notoriety for doing things new or better or differently, thinking creatively how to solve problems with an immense amount of resources was so much more interesting than solving the same problem for a customer with the same templates from 10 years ago. And, you know, doing a PhD, seeing everyone around me with their PhDs, it really felt like the most exciting path that I could think of is really, you know, scientific innovation like that. And it kind of brought together the creativity that I was missing in the engineering undergraduate world and people just sticking their flags in something and publishing it. And it was, it was really exciting. So for, for those uninitiated with the national lab system, do you want to just give kind of like an overview of what it is? I mean, by yeah. this point, some people have seen Oppenheimer, so they, they yeah, have a little yeah, bit of perfect. an idea, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, I think Argonne National Lab was actually the first um, Department of Energy U.S. National Lab that was established. And the national labs, there's more than 10 of them, I think less than 20 of them in the United States. Um, they were established in the 40s. I think Argonne was maybe 39, 1939. 
but essentially they are powerhouses of federal research um, sprinkled throughout the United States. A lot of nuclear research, nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, um, environmental science. Really, it's a it's a lab that is able to conquer and answer questions that just take too long to answer for you know more commercially funded labs. For example, uh, Argon has creep experiments that have been going on for sixty years, material in an oven that it, it's from sixty years ago, and they're you know, it's for testing for materials to go into nuclear reactors. They can extrapolate the creep results times two or maybe 50%. I mean, don't quote me, but they have to test these materials for decades and decades. And so before they are approved for nuclear safety. And so I think the US government realized that there is a science that doesn't really fit into a commercial or even a university funding cycle that really will help national security um, for the United States. So Los Alamos is a pretty notorious one. Um, we work with Argonne National Lab in Chicago, Oak Ridge National Lab and Manufacturing Demonstration Facility. It's like Costco for 3D printers. There's $100 million worth of 3D printers in there. Some really experimental ones, um, some great stuff going on there. So it's really like a, just a, you know, a great way to achieve, you know, get some of the greatest scientists in the U.S. and get that funding and the expertise to solve some questions that are pretty, pretty large questions. So, do you remember the first time that you saw three D printing? So, was it that that high school class that you with the cupcake system, or was yeah. it something else? Well, it was probably the first time I brushed my teeth. I would say. <laughs> with extrusion-based 3D printing, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, it was basically in that department of making things, but I think I think there's a lot of 3D printing people don't really think about like toothpaste, any kind sure. of extrusion, yep. um, you know, making frosting, that's 3D printing, so. Yep, yep, awesome. And so um, you, you're doing the PhD, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do kind of next or after after that was completed? Yeah, so I was um, fortunate enough that my PhD topic was something that I chose, was able to choose that was more relevant to the current state of the industry than the majority of PhDs. So lots of times these research thesis questions will be focused on uh, that you know a pinprick of something so advanced that it's not commercializable it only affects 10 people in the entire world um it's commercializable but maybe in 100 years from now um but after i did my whole literature review on you know all of the methods of in-situ inspection and really learned about the challenges and the the applications that would be able to be accessed if we could print with high quality inspection part guarantee. I realized that then my PhD thesis was so applicable to the industry and there was a way and a method to commercialize. Um, so after I filed um, my first paper um, to get all of the 
you know, required numbers because um, Los Alamos was still funding the um, the research at this point. Um, we really, I talked to my advisor and we were able to, you know, think about solving the system in a usable way or sol solving the challenges involving park quality in a way that's immediately useful for the industry. And that kind of led me down the entrepreneurship pathway and towards exiting academia and um, building a company. Do you have any um, mentors or people that you saw doing that path? Because I mean, I think sometimes we kind of take it for granted of like, it's not easy to, to start a company. There's a lot of risk, right? Especially coming from a, a, a PhD is a little bit different, but like certainly a national lab where it's like, hey, regular paycheck, like you're funded right. by the federal government, like generally pretty stable. <laughs> Things yeah, like my, that. my advisor for my PhD, um, he was really inspiring in, in so many ways. And just basically, you know, your PhD advisor has the potential to make you miserable forever. Um, but that was the opposite of what he did, he did for me. Um, but he actually told me it was too risky for him to do a startup at this stage. So um, he didn't, he wasn't a mentor to me in particular for entrepreneurship and building this company. Um, but one of my earliest mentors was my first advisor or boss manager at Los Alamos National Lab. Um, his name's Eric Flynn. He's won two R&D 100 awards in structural health monitoring for his invention called acoustic wave number spectroscopy, which is the system that uses steady state ultrasound excitation and a laser Doppler vibrometer to measure thicknesses of plates. Um, so you can imagine a swimming pool or a puddle. And if you throw a rock into the puddle, you can see the waves and the wider the wavelength is on the surface, the deeper the puddle is, but with a really shallow puddle, the waves are bouncing and the waves on the surface are close together with a sure. um, you know, short wavelength. So basically we would put this um, ad hoc ultrasound um, vibration device, which was actually sold as a, jewelry vibration system to you know send ultrasound through a medium to clean jewelry we'd clamp it onto a plate with corrosion or a composite plate with a delamination um we'd send steady state excitation um so the things wiggling around like this vibrating then the laser doppler vibrometer measures each point and we calculate the wave number which is just the inverse of the wavelength and areas with high wave number, um, meaning short wavelength, um, we can calculate the thickness of the plate. And so it was really exciting working on such an emerging technology um, in sensing. And um, he put me on a project to support this, this feasibility test with Shell. And we were doing uh, I would travel down to Santa Fe and we did some measurements on oil tanks and it was just really interesting and exciting developing the technology that no one has ever done before. No one has ever made work before. And also getting that 
exposure to real customers who give a shit about what you're doing. Because sometimes at the national labs, it's just like, oh, no one cares about about this this paper. You find yourself just toiling over some small detail, but seeing the bigger picture was really amazing. And it was funny. We were competing with, you know, we we set up the system, we set up the tripod, we get the map, we have the graphics user interface, and we're like, here's the defect, here's the average thickness of the plate, and it's a big win. And then we're competing with the status quo. And the technician comes up with a single point ultrasound probe and just comes in high confidence and measures one point on the plate and is like, see, I, I can just measure that, you know, this is a thickness, but it's like, actually, you know, we have millions of points of measurement and we can do this in a dangerous environment an extreme environment. But it was kind of, you know, foreshadowing to you're always competing with the status quo and the confidence of whatever comes before. And in this case, it's just one guy with one measurement point taking three samples of a plate. Um, so it's kind of interesting, like the new technology and the amount of convincing or the amount of business development required to make an impact. It's not just based on the technology, it's based on the story. Yep. And so maybe talk about kind of the, some of the early days of of going into to start a plan what was what was that like what was your your kind of mindset did you know what did you was it what you expected was it completely different like wh when did you kind of make that kind of mental transition into yeah so really i had to deprogram myself the end of my phd from caring about things that were so technical so you know, when you're doing academia and developing a technology and building a prototype, it's easy to think that the value proposition is resolution or other kinds of technical parameters that you find that you publish on, you know, oh, our standard deviation is this. So if someone were to ask me, what's the value proposition of your technology, it would be, oh, five micron resolution and 10 micron pixel patch spacing. And then you walk away because that's what was so impactful in the research community, but you know, it doesn't really correspond to value proposition at a company or in business. And so the way that I was able to really like deprogram myself or reprogram myself was through the national I-Corps program which is a National Sound Science Foundation program um, that there's regional nodes hosted at many different universities and national nodes hosted at other universities. And it's basically a way for anyone involved in academia, um, grad students, undergrads, um, associates, um, to basically validate their ideas of inventions in a lean startup framework with um, a really rigorous community of experts. So at, at UCSD, there's an NSF I-Corps program that I joined, and it was really a way to learn about Lean Startup, learn about the business model canvas, learn about customer archetypes, product market fit, and in a way that kind of lets you look at your invention from a different perspective. And 
the most valuable part of that program and the follow-on program, the national I-Corps program, is, are these customer interviews. So I was basically able to learn a method to validate the market, not focused on our invention, but on the needs and pains of our customer profile. So through these customer interviews, we would ask um, over a hundred um, you know, customers, which are just basically anyone in the added manufacturing community, questions about the pains, um, how things work without saying product forward questions, without asking, would you buy this? Do you think this is useful? Here's what we're developing. Isn't it great? But it's more about, you know, what is the worst part of your day? What do you feel afraid of when you're using metal 3D printing? What's the worst thing that can possibly happen with a build? You know, what happens after that? Who's responsible for that? And with those questions, it can help you validate if your idea is useful, valuable, or if it's just something that's kind of technology centered, but not necessarily application centered. And I knew I had really screwed with my, with my programming um, when after I finished the, the national I-Corps program for a hundred customer interviews, focusing only on product market fit um, value proposition, the first SBIR phase one that I put in the project pitch for from the NSF, I got the, we got rejected from the pitch, the one page pitch or the two page pitch. And the comments were just, there's no information about the technology at all. And I reread the pitch and it's just only the value, the customer, the problem statement, product market fit, why it matters, broader impacts, but I had completely left out any information about what the thing actually is or any kind of scientific technical merit that I've been working on after this rigorous program. So I knew at that point, you know, my brain is, has been brainwashed into the business and the value of the technology and not specifically PhD technology. I think that's what we first saw. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And then when did you land in Chicago? What was, so you were at UCSD. Um, when did you decide 80 and sunny every day was not what you really wanted? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, yeah, I interviewed you for the, the NSF program. I, remember. Yeah. I don't know if I, I was probably not useful, but everyone <laughs> was useful. Yeah, I have that recorded. Everyone I talk to is recorded <laughs> in an Excel spreadsheet. So I'm all the notes. So that will be fun to go back and look at. Um, yeah, so as I was wrapping up my PhD with about one year left, um, I talked to one of my friends who had recently graduated and um, he told me about the lab embedded entrepreneurship programs. And these are programs um, sponsored by the Department of Energy, specifically the Advanced Manufacturing Office, which I think is rebranded with an, another acronym, maybe AM. AMTO or AMMTO or something. Um, but when uh, when I was applying, it was the Advanced Manufacturing Office. And essentially at these national labs, um, Oak Ridge, Argonne, Berkeley, Lawrence Berkeley, um, and I think some others have added like um, NREL. But essentially it's a, it's a program that will fund about four to five entrepreneurs a year 
who are working on deep tech and climate tech innovations and building companies that will address climate change and sustainable manufacturing or sustainable activities that support um, the US on building a, a more sustainable future. And so I applied to Chain Reaction Innovations, which is the Argonne Leap Node. Um, and when I won a spot, um, and you know, it's a it's a fellowship program that provided a stipend, research and development funds, facilities, um, entrepreneurship programming, travel stipend, really the whole package. Um, but most importantly, um, close partnership and a credo with Argonne National Lab in Chicagoland. So that's what really got me out here is um, winning this fellowship and having the space to start planning and really. Um, making my dreams of starting Phase 3D a reality um, with the help of the U.S. National Lab System, the Department of Energy, and all of this facility space that was available to me through the Chain Reaction Innovations Program. Cool. And do you want to talk a little bit about what what you guys do? What's the technology and kind of describe it yeah. for the audience a bit? Yeah. So, you know, when I imagine advanced manufacturing and metal 3D printing and all of this amazing technology. I think of a facility with the lights out, conveyor belts, automatically producing these advanced parts with high part quality guarantee, um, no supervision um, on demand and addressing supply chain issues like the, the technology really has a potential for. But in reality, metal 3D printing at a production level quality is at its relative immaturity compared to other kinds of manufacturing that have been tried and true for 100 plus years. And so as soon as we can overcome the challenge of part quality, part variance, and have the certification inspection and qualification to prove that part quality, we can be back into the production level and the exponential growth that we're all expecting and we know it can be done in the additive industry. And so that's what my company does. We're focused on unlocking that next phase of additive manufacturing through real-time inspection and part certification. So we can transition from prototypes to those end-use parts with high confidence, uh, high throughput, and those amazing designs you see, which are only uh, achievable through these advanced manufacturing techniques uh, and additive manufacturing. And so we've developed this product um, called Fringe, which is an in-situ inspection system, which inspects every layer of powder bed fusion, binder jetting. Um, we're working on our cold spray variant Essentially, we can inspect every layer before and after the binding, the melting, or the spraying process with real units um, that can be used for immediate defect detection, um, part certification, and just holding your printer accountable for what it's actually doing, what features are being actually printed in the part um, in a reliable and completely data transparent way um, not relying on a neural network. Um, and, and really, our focus is developing these inspection systems that can be built into certification qualification for these advanced parts. Awesome. And so 
when you say kind of validating layer on layer, what are you looking for specifically? Is it uh, an image defect? Is it a temperature or some other sensor probe that that or or signal that that you're looking for? Can you give us some insight on kind of what for yeah maybe so, not in detail, but like what what does it mean what to see a a layer good versus bad? Yeah, so we use height as our inspection feature. And the height spectrum is really interesting. It can detect defects in any layer of powder that's spread before any melting or solidification even happens. We're able to see streaks, hops, spatter, short feeds, build plate skew, anything that is deposited during the build um, and get a quantification and a, and a height cloud of all of those points in the, the chamber or the measurement area. And then we use height again after the binding or the melted layer um, is exposed to look for any changes in areas that shouldn't have changed dimensionally or you know where the spatter agglomerations land. Um, did the layer get fused correctly? Did the layer get bound correctly? Um, and we found that Using the height spectrum, it's a quantifiable feature. Um, it's not subject to different lighting conditions. It's not subject to different emissivity. It's a material independent feature. And we're able to quantify these build um, anomalies and part defects with real units, um, which we found is really important for NASA in situ monitoring work um, and other customers who need something that's highly quantifiable in terms of part acceptance. So, I mean, we're in adjacent spaces, certainly in terms of uh, collecting data around materials and traceability. One of the harder questions I get for this and I always think about is you take older technology, the castings and forgings and things like that, technologies that weren't developed with alongside digital data tracking, data, data modeling, things like that. Um, one argument you hear is like, hey, just because we have all of this data available, how do we make it um, distilled in such a way that an operator can make a decision about it, right? It's one thing to, to capture it, but um, what's kind of a, um, for you guys, where's the, uh, hey, red light, green light? Like, do you guys are kind of getting to that point where you say, okay, we know, like, if you see enough of these height deviations, you got a problem, or is that something that as you develop it with your partners and your customers, you kind of learn along the way to say, okay, hey, we've got more of a window than we thought, like, maybe we can decrease the resolution, like what, where are you guys thinking in terms of, of that development? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really big issue in the in-situ monitoring data collection process, process recording industry is, you know, okay, you have this in-situ data, so what? What do you do about it? Do you need a supercomputer, a PhD, a material scientist, or an intern to look through every single layer and figure out what's going on? So we've really built our system with the constraint in mind that there needs to be an action, whether it's a binary action, whether it's set by the technician and allowable thresholds, 
whether it's calculated all automatically by a history of the part, um, either porosity or fatigue life. And so through our partnership with Argonne National Lab, we're able to, to do this validation work. Essentially, we created, well, we recreated these anomalies, which we measure in titanium, and we were able to um, take uh, at the advanced photon source, we're able to take these high-speed X-ray videos of the sintering process and see in real time, you know, this um, lack of of powder or this um, powder streak. Um, really, you know, we watched it and we quantified the amount of powder that causes a keyhole pore, and so we can find these pores find the melt pool penetration depth with these advanced um, x-ray machines or um, serial sectioning or CT scan. And, you know, we're detecting the predecessor for these part defects. And so finding the correlation between the print defects or the print anomalies and the part performance. And that is really where we see the value and where we see that go and no-go gauge, it's not necessarily based on something subjective like a shadow, but it's more based on, is this anomaly going to create a, an, an, an increased layer of porosity in the part? Or is this anomaly going to create higher variance in fatigue life for build, um, all the parts on the build? And that constraint is, is really important to our, our system and the design of our system and the development of our system because data can get pretty large pretty quickly. And if there's no feedback for the technician, there's no user profile or user setting for the technician or the build manager or the build engineer, it's really hard for them to, you know, gain value from, from the system. Sure. And so switching away from the technical a little bit, or this may overlap, but um, as a kind of founder of a company, what's been one of the most unexpected things that you found in, in running your own thing? Um, I think being a solo founder and building a team has been the most difficult challenge. Um, but I'm really happy to report that, you know, we have a, a strong foundational core team um, developed that is really able to fulfill all of the different aspects of the company and work synergistically with each other. Um, communicate with each other. Um, but that the team building aspect as a solo founder in particular has been been a massive challenge in going from a PhD researcher managing projects and only having to communicate with myself to building a team and a community and a community space has definitely been the biggest challenge, I think. Um, but it just gets so much easier as new people get added to the team and we start to grow. It just brings me a lot of energy and brings so much value having dissenting opinions, multiple skill sets, um, different ideas coming to the forefront that, you know, I would have never thought of the person next to me would have never thought of, but the new person, you know, that's really what is has been the most challenging, but also the most exhilarating part of building the company. 
I would say. And also just breaking down, there's so many things that I had to become just good enough to pass by. And I kind of forgot that, you know, people, it's just been for the last couple of years, it's been having to do whatever's needed and not really think about, oh, I, I want to, I want to do the mechanical design. That's what my job is. It's more just like, oh, I need to review this patent now it's like i have to become just good enough to read a patent and figure out what you know what the claims and the abstract and the background means and is used for and then the next time it's oh what's the trademark on illinois what you know i have to become just good enough to read an electric diagram and recreate or do testing with an oscilloscope just good enough in electrical engineering and it's been so much of just doing everything that you know that's been that's been difficult it's, and I, I've just forgotten like what it's what it means to have a one job description I guess so there's another one cool and just last couple of questions so uh do you have a, a favorite book or a book that you'd recommend to kind of people that gave you some inspiration or some some ideas in terms of how to run your business or kind of was impactful in, in any way in your life? Um, really, the Lean Startup um, book was pretty impactful and the lessons that were distilled in some of the chapters that I read during the, the NSF I-Core program is really interesting. You know, defining a startup as more about activities done at the company versus the size or how old it is. So it's really interesting learning about the startup. The purpose of the startup is to, as inexpensively as possible, search for a repeatable business model that can scale. And once you begin to be, once you find that business model that can scale, you can build something that's more rigid and enter your scale-up mode, but that could take 10 years, 20 years. You could be, you know, a million ARR, 10 million ARR startup if you're still searching for that repeatable business model. Um, but it's about, you know, the stages of a company and the difference between a startup and just a tiny non-startup company like you can have a, a company that with five people that's executing that has already scaled up that's found the business model that works that's repeatable and you could be six months in and no longer a startup or you could be you know vc funded with a hundred million and a thousand employees still searching for that business model and i think you'd still be considered a startup so it was really interesting to to know exactly what a startup is what a scale-up is and what a company is. I know that startup's not just a small, tiny company or baby company. It's not an interesting mindset. So, so last question. Um, what are you excited about for kind of the next six six months? Are we going to see you at uh, any of the trade shows or where can people come come find you, see what you're doing? Yeah, so um, Noah Mastow, our business development manager, will be at Formnext Forum. He'll be wearing this jacket, um, pretty easy to find. We're exhibiting at the startup area in Formnext in November in Frankfurt. So really excited 
Um, love that conference. We have some exciting new technology developments and new partnerships to announce for that um, with our secret for now. So really excited for the next uh, five months and um, kicking off our cold spray project with Ellsworth uh, Air Force Base and UDRI. We're just finishing our successful phase two with um, Tinker Air Force Base. We're on the heel end of our NASA Marshall Space Flight Center project. Um, soon to announce some more commercial partnerships um, in addition to the DMG Mori partnership, a research collaboration, materialize um, partnership. So really, you know, it's been an exciting road getting integrated into the AM ecosystem and being able to provide a tool that can be used by the users of the technology, the end users of the parts coming from the technology in terms of certification, the machine tool builders who are interested in getting quantitative data from the process, and really, you know, entering entering the market and and building our presence in the ecosystem has been really exciting. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining the show today. Excited to see you around the industry, um, around Chicago. So, so um, awesome. Good work. Thanks so much. So.